Section 16 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. Section 16. Selected Excerpts by James Matthew Barry. Jess Left Alone From A Window in Thrums There may be a few who care to know how the lives of Jess and Hendry ended. Leeby died in the back end of the year I have been speaking of, and as I was snowed up in the schoolhouse at the time, I heard the news from Gavin Fierce too late to attend her funeral. She got her death on the comnity one day of a sudden rain, when she had run out to bring in her washing, for the terrible cold she woke up with next morning carried her off very quickly. Leeby did not blame Jessie for not coming to her, nor did I, for I knew that even in the presence of death the poor must drag their chains. He never got Hendry's letter with the news, and we now know that he was already in the hands of her who played the devil with his life, before the spring came, he had been lost to Jess. Themet has got same money, blessings mere than the generality, Hendry said to me one day, when Craigie Buckle had given me a lift into Thrums. Has nay shame if they would pray I for mare. The Lord has given this hoose same muckle. At to pray for mare looks like no being thankful for what we've got. Aye, but I canna help praying to him. At in his great mercy he'll take Jess afore me. Knew it Leeby's gone, and Jamie never lets us hear frae him. I canna gulp doon the thocht, o Jess being left alane. This was a prayer that Hendry may be pardoned for having so often in his heart, though God did not think fit to grant it. In Thrums, when a weaver died, his women folk had to take his seat at the loom and those who, by reason of infirmities, could not do so, went to a place, the name of which, I thank God, I am not compelled to write in this chapter. I could not, even at this day, have told any episode in the life of Jess had it ended in the poorhouse. Hendry would probably have recovered from the fever had not this terrible dread darkened his intellect when he was still prostrate. He was lying in the kitchen when I saw him last in life, and his parting words must be sadder to the reader than they were to me. "'I ricked ye are,' he said, in a voice that had become like a child's. "'I hae muckle, muckle to be thankful for, and know the least is that baith me and Jess has a belonged to a burial society. We hae nae cause to be anxious about a thing being doon respectable,' Ain'ts were gone. It was Jess at insisted on oor joinin'. A the wisest things I ever did I was put up to by her. I parted from Hendry, cheered by the doctor's report, but the old weaver died a few days afterward. His end was mournful, yet I can recall it now as not the unworthy close of a good man's life. One night poor worn Jess had been helped Ben into the room. Baby Beers having undertaken to sit up with Hendry. Jess slept for the first time in many days, 
and as the night was dying Tibby fell asleep too. Hendry had been better than usual, lying quietly, Tibby said, and the fever was gone. About three o'clock Tibby woke and rose to mend the fire. Then she saw that Hendry was not in his bed. Tibby went Ben to the house in her stocking soles, but Jess heard her. "'What is it, Tibby?' she asked anxiously. "'Oh, it's no Nathan,' Tibby said. "'He's lying rail quiet.' Then she went up to the attic. Hendry was not in the house. She opened the door gently and stole out. It was not snowing, but there had been a heavy fall two days before, and the night was windy. A tearing gale had blown the upper part of the bray clear, and from Tanauhead's fields the snow was rising like smoke. Tibby ran to the farm and woke up Tanauhead. For an hour they looked in vain for Hendry. At last someone asked who was working at Elshinner's shop all night. This was the long earthen-floored room in which Hendry's loom stood with three others. "'It'll be Sanders Waymond, likely,' Tanauhead said and the other men nodded. But it happened that Tnauhead's bell, who had flung on a wrapper and hastened across to sit with Jess, heard of the light in Elshiner's shop. "'It's Hendry!' she cried, and then everyone moved toward the workshop. The light at the diminutive, darn-covered window was pale and dim, but Bell, who was at the house first, could make the most of a cruisy's glimmer. "'It's him,' she said, and then, with swelling throat, she ran back to Jess. The door of the workshop was wide open, held against the wall by the wind. Tnauhead and the others went in. The cruzy stood on the little window. Hendry's back was to the door, and he was leaning forward on the silent loom. He had been dead for some time, but his fellow workers saw that he must have weaved for nearly an hour. It came about that for the last few months of her pilgrimage Jess was left alone. Yet I may not say that she was alone. Jamie, who should have been with her, was undergoing his own ordeal far away, where we do not now even know. But though the poorhouse stands in Thrums, where all may see it, the neighbors did not think only of themselves. Then Tammas Haggard there can scarcely have been a poor man, but Tammas was the first to come forward with offer to help. To the day of Jess's death he did not once fail to carry her water to her in the morning, and the luxuriously living men of Thrums in these present days of pumps at every corner can hardly realize what that meant. Often there were lines of people at the well by three o'clock in the morning, and each had to wait his turn. Tammas filled his own pitcher and pan, and then had to take his place at the end of the line with Jess's pitcher and pan, to wait his turn again. His own house was in the tenements, far from the bray in wintertime, but he always said to Jess it was, Nathan, Ava. Every Saturday old Robbie Angus sent a bag of sticks and shavings from the sawmill by his little son Rob, who was afterwards to become a man for speaking about at nights. Of all the friends that Jess and Henry had, Tnauhead was the ablest to help, and the sweetest memory I have of the farmer and his wife is the delicate way they offered it. You who read will see Jess wince at the offer of charity, but the poor have fine feelings beneath the grime, as you will discover if you take care to look for them, and when Jess said she would bake if anyone would buy, you would wonder to hear how many kindly folk came to her door for scones. 
She had the house to herself at nights, but Tibby Bierce was with her early in the morning, and other neighbors dropped in. Not for long did she have to wait the summons to the better home. Nah, she said to the minister, who has told me that he was a better man from knowing her. My thought is nay to set on the vanities of the world new. I kinna who I could ever hae hain sick an ambition, to hae they stuff bottom chairs. I have tried to keep away from Jamie, whom the neighbors sometimes upbraided in her presence. It is of him you who read would like to hear, and I cannot pretend that Jess did not sit at her window looking for him. Even when she was bacon, Tibby told me, she I had an eye on the bray. If Jamie had come at any time when it was licked, she would have seen him as soon as he turned the corner. If he ever comes back, the sasket, rascal, to now had said to Jess, we'll show him the door gay quick. Jess just looked, and all the women knew how she would take Jamie to her arms. We did not know of the London woman then, and Jess never knew of her. Jamie's mother never for an hour allowed that he had become anything but the loving laddie of his youth. I can him oor weel, she always said, my ain Jamie. Toward the end she was sure he was dead. I do not know when she first made up her mind to this, nor whether it was not merely a phrase for those who wanted to discuss him with her. I know that she still sat at the window looking at the elbow of the bray. The minister was with her when she died. She was in her chair, and he asked her, as was his custom, if there was any particular chapter which she would like him to read. Since her husband's death she had always asked for the fourteenth of John. Hendry's chapter, as it is still called among a very few old people in Thrums. This time she asked him to read the sixteenth chapter of Genesis. When I came to the thirteenth verse, the minister told me, and she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. She covered her face with her two hands, and said, Joey's text, Joey's text. Oh, but I grudged ye sair, Joey. I shut the book, the minister said, when I came to the end of the chapter, and then I saw that she was dead. It is my belief that her heart broke one and twenty years ago. After the Sermon From The Little Minister Permission of the American Publishers' Corporation One may gossip in a glen on Sabbath, though not in town, without losing his character, and I used to await the return of my neighbor, the farmer of Waster Lunny, and of Bryce, the Glen Quaharty Post, at the end of the schoolhouse path. Waster Lunny was a man whose care in his leisure hours was to keep from his wife his great pride in her. His horse, Catlaw, on the other hand, he told outright what he thought of it, praising it to his face and blackguarding it as it deserved. And I have seen him, when completely baffled by the brute, sit down before it on a stone and thus harangue. You think you're clever, Catlaw, my lass, but you're mistaken. You're thrawn limmer, that's what you are. You think you have blood in you. You hae blood. Gae away, and dinna blether. I tell you what, Catlaw, I met a man yestern that kent your mither, and he says she was a fikey, fushinless besom. What do you say to that? As for the post, 
I will say no more of him than that his bitter topic was the unreasonableness of humanity, which treated him graciously when he had a letter for it, but scowled at him when he had none. I implying that I hae a letter but keep it back. On the Sabbath evening after the riot, I stood at the usual place awaiting my friends, and saw before they reached me that they had something untoward to tell. The farmer, his wife, and three children, holding each other's hands, stretched across the road. Byers was a little behind, but a conversation was being kept up by shouting. All were walking at the Sabbath pace, and the family having started half a minute in advance, the post had not yet made up on them. "'It's sitting to snaw,' Waster Lunny said, drawing near, and just as I was to reply, it is so, Silva slipped in the words before me. "'You was not at the kirk,' was Espa's salutation. I had been at the Glen Church, but did not contradict her, for it is established, and so neither here nor there. I was anxious, too, to know what their long faces meant, and therefore asked at once, Was Mr. Dishart in the riot? Forenoon I, afternoon no, replied Waster Lunny, walking round his wife to get nearer me. Domini, a query thing happened in the kirk this day, sick as— Waster Lunny, interrupted Elspeth sharply, have you on your Sabbath shoon, or have you no on your Sabbath shoon? Good care you took, I should hear the dagont uncanny things on, retorted the farmer. Keep out of the gutter, then, said Elspeth, on the Lord's day. Him, said her man, that is forced by a foolish woman to wear genteel, elastic-sided boots, cannot forget them until he takes them aff. Wars the extra reverence in wearing shoon twa sizes or small? It mayn't be mere reverent, suggested Bierce, to whom Elspeth's kitchen was a pleasant place, but it's grand, and you cannot expect to be baith grand and comfortable. I reminded them that they were speaking of Mr. Dishart. We was saying, began the post briskly, that— It was me that was saying it, said Waster Lunny. So, Domini— Hold your gabs, baith o' you, interrupted Elspeth. You've been roaring the story to one another till you're hoarse. In the forenoon, Waster Lunny went on determinedly, Mr. Dishart preached on the riot, and fine he was. Oh, Domini, you should hae heard him ladling it on to Lang Tamas, no by name, but in sick a way that there was no mistaking what he was preaching at. Sal, oh, losh! Thomas got it strong. But he's dull in the uptake, broke in the post, by what I expected. I spoke to him after the sermon, and I says, just to see if he was properly humbled. Aye, Thomas, I says. Them that discourse was preached against, winna think themselves seven feet men for a while again. Aye, Beers, he answers, and glad I am to hear you admit it, for he had you in his eye. I was fair scunnered at Tammas the day. Mr. Dishart was preaching at the whole clan Jamfrey, are you? said Elspeth. Maybe he was, said her husband, leering. But you need not cast it at us, for my creety. If the men got it fray from him in the forenoon, the women got it in the afternoon. He read them up most mitchy, said the post. They were his words, or something like them. 
Adam, he says, was an erring man, but aside Eve he was respectable. Aye, but it wasn't a woman he meant, Elspeth explained, for when he said that, he pointed his finger directly at Nauhead's lassie, and I hope it'll do her good. But I wonder, I said, that Mr. Dishart chose such a subject today. I thought he would be on the riot at both services. You'll wonder mare, said Elspeth, when you hear what happened afore he began the afternoon sermon. But I canna get a word in with that man o' mine. We've been speaking about it, said Byers, ever since we left the kirk door. Todd, we've been sawn it like a seed, a alang the glane. And we meant to tell you about it at once, said Wester Lunny, but there's I so muckle to say about a minister. De gaunt, to hay ain keeps a body out o' langer. Ay, but this breaks the drum. Domini, either Mr. Dishart wasn't weel, or he was in the devil's grip. This startled me, for the farmer was looking serious. He was weel enough, said Byers, for a heap o' folk spired at Jean if he had taken his porridge as usual, and she admitted he had. But the lassie was skeered herself, and it was a mercy Mrs. Dishart wasna in the kirk. Why was she not there? I asked anxiously. Oh, he went a letter out in sick weather. I wish you would tell me what happened, I said to Elspeth. So I will, she answered, if Waster Lunny would hold his weast for a minute. You see, the afternoon diet began in the ordinary way, and I was richt until we came to the sermon. You will find my text, he says, in his piercing voice, in the eighth chapter of Ezra. And at they words, said Waster Lunny, my heart gave a loop, for Ezra is an unca ill book to find. Ay, and so is Ruth. I kent the books of the Bible by heart, said Elspeth scornfully, when I was six year old. So did I, said Waster Lunny, and I ken them yet, except when I'm hurried. When Mr. Dishart gave out Ezra, he sort of keeked round the kirk, to find out if he had puzzled anybody, and so there was a kind o' of competition among the congregation, way would lay hand on it first. That was what doited me. Aye, there was Ruth when she wanna wanted, but Ezra, de gaunt, it looked as if Ezra had jumped clean out of the Bible. You wasn't the only distressed critter, said his wife. I was ashamed to see Eppie McLaren looking up the order o' the books at the beginning o' the Bible. Tibby Beers was even madder brazen, said the post, for the sly cutty opened at King's and pretended it was Ezra. Nay, o' things would I do, said Waster Lunny, and Sal, I durendna, for David Lunin was glowering over my shoulder. Ay, you may scowl at me, Elspeth Proctor, but as far back as I can mind Ezra has done me. Mooney a time afore I start for the kirk, I take my Bible to a quiet place and look Ezra up. In the very pew I says canny to myself, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, the which should be a help, but the moment the minister gies out that awful book, away goes Ezra like the Egyptian. And you after her, said Elspeth, like the weavers that wouldn't fetch. You make a windmill of your Bible. Oh, I wouldn't admit I'm beat. Never mind. There's queer things in the world for by Ezra. How is cripples I so poofed up mare than other folk? And how does flour bread I fall on the buttered side? 
"'I will mind,' Elspeth said, "'for I was terrified the minister would admonish you frae the pulpit.' "'He couldna hae done that, for was he no baffled to find Ezra himsel?' "'Him no find Ezra?' cried Elspeth. "'I hae telled you a dozen times he found it as easy as you could yoke a horse.' "'The thing can be explained in no other way,' said her husband doggedly, "'if he was weel and in sound mind.' "'Maybe the Dominique can clear it up,' suggested the post, "'him being a scholar.' "'Then tell me what happened,' I asked. "'Man, hey we no telled you,' Byers said. "'I thought we had.' "'It was a terrible scene,' said Elspeth, giving her husband a shove. "'As I said, Mr. Dishart gave out Ezra Eighth. "'Weel, I turned it up in a jiffy, "'and Syne looked cautiously to see how Epi McLaren was getting on.' Just at that minute I heard a groan frae the pulpit. It didn't stop short o' a groan. Aye, you may be sure I looked quick at the minister, and there I saw a sicht that would hae made the grand escape. His face was as white as a baker's, and he had sort of fallen against the back of the pulpit, staring demented-like at his open Bible. And I saw him, said Beers, put up his hand between him and the book, as if he thought it was to jump at him. Twice, said Elspeth, he tried to speak, and twice he let the words fall. That, said Wasterlunny, the whole congregation admits, but I dinna see it myself, for this time you may picture me hunting savage-like for Ezra. I thought the minister was waiting till I found it. Henry Moon, said Beers, stood upon one leg, wondering whether he should run to the session-house for a glass of water. By that time, said Elspeth, the fit had left Mr. Dishart, or rather it had taken a new turn. He grew red, and it's gospel that he stamped his foot. He had the face of one using bad words, said the post. He didn't swear, of course, but that was the face he had on. I missed it, said Wasterlunny, for I was in full cry after Ezra, with a sweat running down my face. But the most astonishing thing has yet to be told, went on Elspeth. The minister shook himself, like one wakened fair a nasty dream, and he cries in a voice of thunder, just as if he was shaking his fist at somebody. He cries, Bierce interposed, cleverly. He cries, You will find the text in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Yes, says Elspeth. First he gave out one text, then he gave out another being the most amazing thing to my mind that ever happened in the town of Thrums. What will our children think o' it? I wouldna hae missed it for a pound note. Nor me, said Wasterlunny, though I only got the tale o' it. Dominie, no sooner had he said Genesis third and sixth than I laid my finger on Ezra. Was it no provoking? Anybody can turn up Genesis, but it needs an able-bodied man to find Ezra. He preached on the fall, Elspeth said, for an hour and twenty-five minutes. But powerful though he was, I would rather he had told us what made him gie the go-by to Ezra. All I can say, said Wasterlunny, is that I ne'er heard him mere awe-inspiring. Where has he got sick a knowledge o' women? He riddled them, he fair riddled them, till I was ashamed of being married. It was easy, Cantwar, he got his knowledge o' women, Byers explained. It's a in the original Hebrew. 
you can hawk ony mortal thing out o the original Hebrew, the which all ministers hae at their finger ends. What else makes them ken to jump a verse now and then when given out a psalm? It was no women like me he denounced, Elspeth insisted, but young lassies that leads men astray with their abominable wheedling ways. Todd, said her husband, if they try their hands on Mr. Dishart, they'll meet their match. They will, chuckled the post. The Hebrew's a grand thing, though tuch, I'm telled, mighty tuch. His sublimest burst, Wasserlani came back to tell me, was about the beauty of the soul being everything, and the beauty of the face no worth a snuff. What a scorn he has for bonny faces and tomb souls! I dinna deny but what a bonny face fell takes me, but Mr. Dishart won a gie a blade o' grass for't. Ay, and I used to think that in their foolishness about women there was dagont little differ atween the unlearned and the highly educated. The Mutual Discovery from The Little Minister by permission of the American Publishers Corporation. A young man thinks that he alone of mortals is impervious to love, and so the discovery that he is in it suddenly alters his view of his own mechanism. It is thus not unlike a rap on the funny bone. Did Gavin make this discovery when the Egyptian left him? Apparently he only came to the brink of it and stood blind. He had driven her from him for ever, and his sense of loss was so acute that his soul cried out for the cure rather than for the name of the malady. In time he would have realized what had happened, but time was denied him, for just as he was starting for the mud-house Babby saved his dignity by returning to him. She looked up surprised, or seemingly surprised, to find him still there. "'I thought you had gone away long ago,' she said stiffly. "'Otherwise,' asked Gavin the dejected, you would not have come back to the well. Certainly not. I am very sorry. Had you waited another moment, I should have been gone. This was said in apology, but the willful Egyptian chose to change its meaning. You have no right to blame me for disturbing you, she declared with warmth. I did not. I only— You could have been a mile away by this time. Nanny wanted more water— Babby scrutinized the minister sharply as she made this statement. Surely her conscience troubled her, for on his not answering immediately she said, "'Do you presume to disbelieve me? What could have made me return except to fill the pans again?' "'Nothing,' Gavin admitted eagerly, "'and I assure you.' Babby should have been grateful to his denseness, but it merely set her mind at rest. "'Say anything against me you choose,' she told him. Say it off as brutally as you like, for I won't listen. She stopped to hear his response to that, and she looked so cold that it almost froze on Gavin's lips. I had no right, he said dolefully, to speak to you as I did. You had not, answered the proud Egyptian. She was looking away from him to show that his repentance was not even interesting to her. However, she had forgotten already not to listen. She was very near him, and the tears had not yet dried on her eyes. They were laughing eyes, eyes in distress, imploring eyes. Her pale face, smiling, sad, dimpled yet entreating forgiveness, was the one prominent thing in the world to him just then. He wanted to kiss her. He would do it as soon as her eyes rested on his, 
but she continued without regarding him. How mean that sounds! Oh, if I were a man I would wish to be everything that I am not, and nothing that I am. I would scorn to be a liar. I would choose to be open in all things. I would try to fight the world honestly. But I am only a woman, and so— Well, that is the kind of man I would like to marry. A minister may be all these things, said Gavin breathlessly. The man I could love, Babby went on, not heeding him, almost forgetting that he was there, must not spend his days in idleness as the men I know do. I do not. He must be brave, no mere worker among others, but a leader of men. All ministers are. Who makes his influence felt? Assuredly. And takes the side of the weak against the strong, even though the strong be in the right. Always my tendency. A man who has a mind of his own, and having once made it up, stands to it in defiance even of— of his session. Of the world. He must understand me. I do. And be my master. It is his lawful position in the house. He must not yield to my coaxing or tempers. It would be weakness. But compel me to do his bidding. Yes, even thrash me if— If you won't listen to reason. Babby, cried Gavin, I am that man— here the inventory abruptly ended, and these two people found themselves staring at each other, as if of a sudden they had heard something dreadful. I do not know how long they stood thus motionless and horrified. I cannot tell even which stirred first. All I know is that almost simultaneously they turned from each other and hurried out of the wood in opposite directions. Lost Illusions From Sentimental Tommy Tomorrow came, and with it two eager little figures rose and gulped their porridge, and set off to see Thrums. They were dressed in the black clothes Aaron Lotta had bought for them in London, and they had agreed just to walk. But when they reached the door and saw the treetops of the den, they—they they ran. Would you not like to hold them back? It is a child's tragedy. They went first into the den, and the rocks were dripping wet. All the trees save the firs were bare, and the mud round a tiny spring pulled off one of Elspeth's boots. "'Tommy,' she cried, quaking, "'that nasty puddle can't not be the cuddle-well, can it?' "'No, it ain't,' said Tommy quickly, but he feared it was. "'It's colder here than London,' Elspeth said, shivering, and Tommy was shivering, too, but he answered, I'm, I'm, I'm warm. The den was strangely small, and soon they were on a shabby bear, where the women in short gowns came to their doors, and the men in nightcaps sat down on the shafts of their barrows to look at Jane Miles's bairns. What does your think? Elspeth whispered, very doubtfully. They're beauties, Tommy answered, determinedly. Presently Elspeth cried, Oh, Tommy! What an ugly stare! Where's the beauty stares as it were outside for show? This was one of them, and Tommy knew it. Wait till you see the west town end, he said, bravely. It's grand. But when they were in the west town end, and he had to admit it, wait till you see the square, he said. And when they were in the square, 
"'Wait,' he said huskily, "'till you see the townhouse.' Alas, this was the townhouse facing them, and when they knew it, he said, hurriedly, "'Wait till you see the old Licht Kirk.' They stood long in front of the old Licht Kirk, which he had sworn was bigger and lovelier than St. Paul's, but— well, it is a different style of architecture, and had Elspeth not been there with tears in waiting, Tommy would not have blubbered. It's, it's littler than I thought, he said, desperately, but the minister, oh, what a wonderful big man he is. Are you sure? Elspeth squeaked. I swear he is. The church door opened, and a gentleman came out, a little man, boyish in the back, with the eager face of those who live too quickly. But it was not at him that Tommy pointed reassuringly. It was at the monster church key, half of which protruded from his tail pocket and wagged as he moved, like the hilt of a sword. Speaking like an old residenter, Tommy explained that he had brought his sister to see the church. "'She's taen aback,' he said, picking out Scotch words carefully, "'because it's littler than the London Kirks. But I telled her—' I telled her that the preaching is better. This seemed to please the stranger, for he patted Tommy on the head while inquiring, How do you know that the preaching is better? Tell him, Elspeth, replied Tommy, modestly. There ain't nothing as Tommy don't know, Elspeth explained. He knows what the minister is like, too. He's a noble sight, said Tommy. He can get anything from God he likes, said Elspeth. "'He's a terrible big man,' said Tommy. This seemed to please the little gentleman less. "'Big!' he exclaimed, irritably. "'Why should he be big?' "'He is big!' Elspeth almost screamed, for the minister was her last hope. "'Nonsense,' said the little gentleman. "'He is—well, I am the minister.' "'You!' roared Tommy wrathfully. "'Oh, oh, oh!' sobbed Elspeth. For a moment the Reverend Mr. Dishart looked as if he would like to knock the two little heads together, but he walked away without doing it. "'Never mind,' whispered Tommy hoarsely to Elspeth. "'Never mind, Elspeth. You have me yet.' This consolation seldom failed to gladden her, but her disappointment was so sharp today that she would not even look up. "'Come away to the cemetery. It's grand,' he said." but still she would not be comforted. "'And I'll let you hold my hand, as soon as we're past the houses,' he added. "'I'll let you hold it now,' he said eventually, but even then Elspeth cried dismally, and her sobs were hurting him more than her. He knew all the ways of getting round Elspeth, and when next he spoke it was with a sorrowful dignity. "'I didna think,' he said, "'as you wanted me never to be able to speak again. No, I didna think it, Elspeth. She took her hands from her face and looked at him inquiringly. "'One of the stories Mama telled me and Reddy,' he said, "'were a man what he saw such a beauty thing that he was struck dumb with admiration. Struck dumb is never to be able to speak again, and I wish I had been struck dumb when you wanted it.' "'But I didn't want it,' Elspeth cried. "'If Thrums had been one bit beautier than it is,' he went on solemnly, "'it would have struck me dumb.' It would have hurt me sore, but what about that, if it pleased you? Then did Elspeth see what a wicked girl she had been, and when next the two were seen by the curious, 
It was on the cemetery road. They were once more looking cheerful. At the smallest provocation they exchanged notes of admiration, such as, "'Oh, Tommy, what a bonny barrel!' or, "'Oh, Elspeth, I tell yer that's a dyke, and there's just wolves in London.' But sometimes Elspeth would stoop hastily, pretending that she wanted to tie her bootlace, but really to brush away a tear, and there were moments when Tommy hung very limp. Each was trying to deceive the other for the other's sake, and one of them was never good at deception. They saw through each other, yet kept up the chilly game, because they could think of nothing better, and perhaps the game was worth playing, for love invented it. Shrivener's Magazine, copyrighted by Charles Shrivener's Sons, New York. Sins of Circumstance, from Sentimental Tommy When the darkness, too, crept into the muckley, certain devils in the colour of the night who spoke thickly, and rolled brawn lads in the mire, and egged on friends to fight, and cast lewd thoughts into the minds of women. At first the men had been bashful swains. To the women's, "'Give me my fairing, Jock,' they had replied. "'Wait, Jean, till I am feed.' but by night most had got their arrows, with a dram above it, and he who could only guffaw at Jean a few hours ago had her round the waist now, and still an arm free for rough play with other kimmers. The jeans were as boisterous as the jocks, giving them leer for leer, running from them with a giggle, waiting to be caught and rudely kissed. Grand, patient, long-suffering fellows these men were, up at five, summer and winter, foddering their horses, maybe, hours before there would be food for themselves, miserably paid, housed like cattle, and when the rheumatism seized them, liable to be flung aside like a broken grape. As hard was the life of the women, coarse food, chaff beds, damp clothes their portion, their sweethearts in the service of masters who were loath to fee a man married. Is it to be wondered that these lads who could be faithful unto death drank soddenly on their one free day, that these girls, starved of opportunities for womanliness, of which they could make as much as the finest lady, sometimes woke after a muckley to wish that they might wake no more? Shrivener's Magazine, copyrighted by Charles Shrivener and Sons, New York End of section 16